I would invite you to turn with me to John chapter 12. We'll be looking together this evening at verses 1 through 19. Before reading from God's Word, let's go to the Lord in prayer together. Our Lord, we thank You again for this privilege in which we can gather with regularity throughout this earthly life. As Your pilgrim people, we long and look ahead to that day when our Savior will return. And may our time together on these Sunday nights be a time of refreshment, renewal, um, reminders of what our Savior has done for us, coupled with great zeal for Your glory. Give us attentiveness this night to Your truth, we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. In John chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, He who was about to betray him said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money back, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. The poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Please be seated. As we come in our study of John's gospel to John chapter 12, it's important, I think, to notice some of the things about the context in which we find Jesus. And so the context in which we find him is an important thing for us to note this evening. You might recall that the raising of Lazarus from the dead in chapter 11 was the catalyst to move the religious leaders in their plot to kill Jesus. The most amazing of signs that John records, that seventh of those miraculous signs in John's gospel, bringing a man to life, serves as this polarizing event. It leads to wonder, and awe and reverence and worship of God on behalf of some, but for others, murderous hatred toward the Lord's anointed one. 
And so Jesus, knowing all things, knowing the murderous hatred and the plot of some, removes himself for a time from public view until his hour of betrayal, suffering, and death arrives. And so everything you see that Jesus does in his earthly ministry is intentional. No one can force his hand. Nothing can bring that hour of his appointed suffering any closer than it has already been determined from the very beginning. Here in chapter 12, Jesus is now back in Bethany, the hometown of Lazarus and his sisters, Mary and Martha. This, of course, was the location of the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead. And John points out that it is now six days until Passover. We read in verse 12 that the next day marks the entrance of Jesus into Jerusalem, that triumphal procession that we celebrate on our church calendar as Palm Sunday. And so if we were to sort of step back a bit and look at what John has covered thus far in his gospel, kind of a bird's eye view of Jesus's earthly ministry. Now here from chapter 12 all the way to the very end of John's gospel in chapter 21, the focus is upon the final week of Jesus's public ministry. His anointing by Mary here, triumphal procession, and the passion of his suffering fill almost one half of John's gospel narrative. Now we know that Jesus's public ministry lasted roughly three years. And so chapters 1 through 11 of John cover those three years of his public ministry, while the last nine chapters focus upon one week. Now, all of the Gospels follow this same pattern. They all have this great emphasis upon the final week of Jesus's earthly life. But why? Why spend so much time upon the final days of Jesus's earthly ministry? Well, because, of course, this is the reason for which he came to this earth. He came to fulfill the law in its entirety and to take upon himself the penalty that we deserve for our disobedience. Perfect obedience and perfect substitutionary sacrifice. This is the reason for which Jesus came. Imagine, as we read in Zechariah 3, standing before the Lord in your filthy garments of rebellion, pride, arrogance, selfishness, lust, and more. And you need two important things in order to avoid condemnation as you stand before the holy God of the universe. You need those garments of filth and defilement removed, and you need to be clothed in the pure, radiant, holy garments of righteousness. And so when Jesus dies upon the cross in our place, he is taking those filthy garments upon himself as he has made a substitute, a sacrificial substitute for us. When Jesus obeys the law perfectly in our place, he is clothing us with his holy, righteous obedience to the law. Paul captures as much for us in 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, God made him to be sin for us, to be reckoned as sin, to take the penalty of sin that we deserved upon himself, that we might become the righteousness of God. And of course, we call this justification, an act of God's free grace, whereby he pardons us of all of our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight, not because of anything within us, but only for the righteousness of Christ 
imputed to us and received by faith alone. Everything in Jesus' life has been moving toward this moment of his sacrificial, substitutionary death. And so it makes sense that not only John, but all of the gospel writers give such detail to the final week of our Savior. And so as we move into this portion of John's gospel, we're going to focus tonight on the various reactions, responses to Jesus. What are the reactions to Jesus as he reaches this climactic point of his public earthly ministry? And as we look at the way that people respond to Jesus, we're really learning ourselves about what it means to be a believer in Christ. What does it mean to be a disciple of the Lord? What does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to call ourselves followers of the Lord? Because a follower of Jesus, to call ourselves such, is really a radical thing. It requires a response of total commitment on our part. And so first, let's consider Mary and really her example of love and devotion toward Jesus. And there's a number of things to notice in these few verses about Mary. We see, first of all, her humble devotion to Jesus, her humble devotion to the Lord. In customary fashion, the men would arrange themselves in horseshoe-like fashion around a common table as they ate of a meal together. They would lay upon their left side, leaving their right hand free to partake of the food before them while their feet would be stretched out behind them. Their sandals would have been removed upon entrance into the home, and oftentimes a household servant would come and wash their feet of the dust and grime that would accumulate from traveling on a Palestinian road. And so Mary, in this great act of humility, takes the place of a lowly servant as she tends to the feet of her Savior. Now, women would not typically unbind their hair in a public setting like this. To do so would have been thought of as scandalous. But here, there is such great love for Jesus that she does not care what others might think of her. Her focus is simply upon expressing her devotion in humility to her Lord. And not only does she pour this ointment upon the feet of Jesus, but she proceeds to wipe his feet with her hair, using her hair almost as a towel, further evidence of her humble devotion. And next we see in Mary her extravagant love. In verse 3, you may have noticed that it reads, Mary therefore took the ointment and anointed the feet of Jesus. William Hendrickson in his commentary says that the little word in Greek, which is translated as therefore, seems to indicate the reason for Mary to act in this manner. And anytime you see the word therefore, you're to ask yourself, what is it therefore? It points you back, of course, simply to chapter 11, pointing us back to the resurrection of her brother Lazarus from the dead. It is a way for her to express her gratitude for what the Lord has done for her. Now, John tells us that Mary took about a pound of expensive ointment, roughly 12 ounces, and uses the entirety of it to anoint the Lord. Now, in the account of Matthew and Mark, they say that she took the ointment and poured it over the head of Jesus, while John states that she points or she pours rather the oil upon his feet. Now, this doesn't mean, as some textual critics would have you believe, that it's a contradiction within the text, but very simply, It is emphasizing the lowly position here in John that Mary takes. 
No doubt she does anoint Jesus with this volume of oil from his head to his feet. Don Carson points out that Matthew and Mark are making the point of recording that the ointment is poured upon the head of Jesus because of their desire to emphasize the kingly role of the Lord. John emphasizes Mary anointing his feet in order to help the reader see her humility before Jesus, her self-perceived unworthiness. Now, anointing in the ancient Near East usually meant two things, to set a person or a thing apart for a particular use, typically for a sacred use, and to confer authority upon the one anointed. But certainly, I think both of these are in view here. Jesus is the Holy One from God. He is the Messiah. He is the Anointed One who is soon to die for the sins of the world. And He is the true living God. He is the King, the one who has authority to lay down His life only to take it up again. And so Mary's act of extravagant love is an acknowledgement of the person of Christ as Messiah and the work of Christ as substitute. And third, in Mary, we see her sacrificial service. Now, we live in a materialistic age, and perhaps when a narrative like this is read before you, you know it well, I'm sure, but perhaps you can't help but think about the extreme cost of this act of service. Some ointments of this nature were extremely rare and costly to possess. Ointments might be even included in the inventory of the assets of a king. And so what we have here is nard, as some translations read it, or oils derived from plants from the region of Nepal. Not only the process of extraction, but the distance that this ointment had to travel no doubt contributed to the high cost. Judas points out that the value would have been close to a year's wages. That seems to be common knowledge. It doesn't merely seem to to be an exaggeration on Judas's part to make a point. So whether this was an heirloom that was passed down to Mary, whether it was an investment on her part, or whether it was a reflection of someone who has great wealth, either way, it is a true sacrifice of devotion. And one more thing to notice about Mary and that is her attentive spirit, her attentive spirit. Notice in verse 7 that Jesus rebukes Judas and any others who might agree with his complaint, and he says, leave her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. You see, there's something about Mary's understanding of Jesus that seems to even eclipse the understanding of the disciples. Now, you know, when you read through the Gospels, you're struck over and again with the confusion of the disciples. Jesus speaks so clearly about his betrayal, his death, and his resurrection, and they're wondering, what, what is he talking about? We even see that here in verse 16. It's not until after Jesus' glorification that the disciples have understanding of this triumphal entry. So how does Mary understand what Jesus is about to do? How? could she be preparing him for his burial? Well, very simply, because she has been listening. She is the one, you'll recall, who sat at the feet of Jesus. 
She has actually paid attention to what he said, listening to his clear prediction of his death, and she has taken those words to heart. And so when we look at all of these facets of Mary's humble, sacrificial, loving, and attentive act, I think we ought to ask ourselves, what does this teach us about how we are called to follow Jesus? Well, just as Mary loves the Lord Jesus with a humble, extravagant, heartfelt love, we too, as his children, are called to love him above all else. In her display of sacrificial devotion and love, this ointment is symbolic of her giving everything to Jesus. She wants to give all that she has and all that she is in service to the Lord. And the reason she is willing to make such a sacrifice is because the value of Jesus outweighs not only the value of this jar of oil, but the value of Jesus outweighs everything else in her life. If something is valuable, you will have no trouble making a sacrifice for it. Turn with me, if you will, over to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew 13, verse 44 through 46, in these two brief parables, notice what Jesus says. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. And what these short parables both teach is that the kingdom of God is worth all, that possessing and pursuing Christ Jesus is more valuable than any pursuit that might occupy us in this earthly life. Do I understand the value of knowing that my sins are forgiven? Do I understand the worth of knowing that I have peace with God, that I have eternal life even now as a present possession, that when I die, I will be with the Lord for all eternity? Do I understand the worth of a new heart, a heart of flesh instead of that heart of stone that was there before? Do I understand freedom from sin and the new life that I have in Christ Jesus the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the law of God that guides me in life, do I really understand the worth of these things? There is no reluctance on Mary's part to perform this act of devotion. She does not care about the cost. She does not care what others might think. She is not doing this for approval from others or for the accolades that others might shower upon her. Her focus and her zeal is Christ-centered. J.C. Ryle says that men convinced of the importance of salvation will give up everything to win Christ and eternal life. Terry Johnson comments that the benefit of the kingdom of God is worth the cost of discipleship, and there is joyful abandon of everything else in order to secure it. As you devote yourself to the Lord in service to Him, P. 
people are going to think that you're wasteful. They're going to think that you're crazy. Why would you spend a Mother's Day evening here gathering as God's? What a foolish waste of time. But in the end, when our Lord returns at the end of the age, it will be evident that this treasure of Jesus himself is more valuable than anything else that the human race might pursue. Any sacrifice pales in comparison to the greatness of Christ. Following Jesus means recognizing his value and his worth, and it means responding in self-sacrificial devotion because of his infinite value, because of what he has done to remove your sins and to give you peace with God. But next, notice back in John 12, the great contrast between the devotion of Mary and the utter selfishness of Judas, the self-focus of Judas. We see his response in verse 5. What a waste. If you really wanted to make a difference in your community, then why not sell this valuable commodity and give us the money? And this is a pretty extravagant thing, isn't it? And perhaps if you were there, you would have been thinking the same thing that Judas says. Of course, no one would have complained if Mary had brought out this jar of ointment when her brother Lazarus died. If she had anointed his dead body, it would have been expected that an act of sorrow would lead to such an extravagant display of love and sorrow. But Judas feels free to grumble and complain because it simply seems like a fleeting, wasteful thing to do. And the response of Judas reveals a heart filled with hypocrisy. He doesn't care about the poor, John tells us. He just sees this as a missed opportunity for himself to skim some of the proceeds off of the top of the money bag. And so where Mary cares about self-sacrifice, all Judas cares about is self-preservation and personal benefit. For Judas, there was no delight in following Jesus Perhaps for a time, there was some initial enthusiasm when he first began following Jesus. But when Jesus didn't do what Judas wanted him to do, when Jesus didn't grant him the desires of his own heart, he had no problem grumbling, complaining, and eventually discarding Jesus for his own benefit. Now, Judas has always been like this. But now, after three years of following Jesus, and hoping for some greater personal benefit, he's getting toward the end of his patience. His heart is being revealed, and it's Mary's great act of devotion that exposes the true condition of her heart, of his heart. The greater the act of devotion and love toward Jesus, the greater the disdain and hatred on the part of the one who has no affection for him. But even in Judas, I think we ought to see this as an opportunity for us to consider our own hearts. Before you look at Judas and just put him in a completely separate category than yourself, use this as an opportunity to give attention to the hypocritical nature within our own hearts. We heard last week in the morning sermon from Luke chapter 11 about the dangers of temporary and superficial change without true conversion. And so even in the wickedness of Judas, I think we see warnings for ourselves. Do we see the law of God as something that's oppressive and restrictive? Or do we see the lawgiver as the one who laid down his life for us, 
the one who loves us with an infinite love. And the more that we are captivated by the infinite love of our Savior, the more we will see the law not as a burden, not as something for our own self-interest, but we will see the law as a law of love. We will long to serve Him because of what He has done for us. And lastly, in this narrative, let's briefly consider the hatred of the chief priests. We saw this hatred at the end of John chapter 11, of course, again, when Jesus rose Lazarus from the dead. Then that hatred continues to grow. They not only want Jesus dead, but they want Lazarus dead as well. They don't marvel that Lazarus was raised from the dead. They don't care that Jesus has the power over death itself and can restore life. They don't care that he is clearly from God and that they should listen to his words of truth. All they care about is, same as Judas, self-preservation. They will lose their positions of authority if Jesus is worshiped. They will lose this level of peace and comfort that they have with Rome if Jesus is worshiped. And I think verse 19 that we read at the end of our text reflects sort of the apex of their disdain. You are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. The Pharisees utter these words out of exasperation. They are convinced that Jesus must be stopped. And yet nothing seems to stop him as his influence continues to grow. And so they feel justified in their murderous plot. And yet there's a sense of irony, isn't there? Prophetic irony in these words. It's true that saints from the nations of the world have gone after him and will go after him until the end of the age. They mean it as hyperbole, but John captures it as prophetic truth. Jesus dies as a substitute for sinners, for all sinners who put their faith in him, for all sinners, regardless of gender and race and background and culture. He is the only way to find peace with God. He is the resurrection and the life, and his work upon the cross is sufficient for the sins of the whole world. His hour has come. We read later in verse 23, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. This is the hour for which Jesus came. This hour has finally arrived. And in typical Johannine fashion, he does this throughout his gospel. He presses the reader. Do you understand? Do you see your need for faith in this king, this king of humility, this king of glory? Do you see the calling to respond in humble service, heartfelt devotion, sacrificial love, and attentive worship? May God in his grace enable us to respond in such a manner. Will you pray with me? Our Lord, as we contemplates the deep riches of this text this evening. Lord, you are a God to be marveled. Our Lord and Savior Jesus, you are to be worshipped and adored. What great mercy, what tender love you have shown to us to lay down your life 
as a substitute for sinners, for those who had nothing but contempt for you. May our response be one of humble devotion and adoration toward you, the great and sovereign Lord, who loves with an eternal and undying love. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.